years when his wife died of cancer and I flew down for the funeral. A few weeks later, he sent me a handwritten note thanking me for coming and expressing the hope that we would see each other more often. A year later, we had dinner together in San Francisco while I was in the city trying a case in federal district court. That was nearly two years ago. I did not hear from him again until he called and asked me if I might be willing to talk to his partner about taking a case. It was a case that every defense attorney in the country would have given anything to get. Since the night it happened, the murder of Jeremy Fullerton in a parked car on a San Francisco street had been the only case anyone could talk about. The murder of a United States senator was bound to be news, but Fullerton had also been the Democratic candidate for governor of California. What made it even more interesting, Fullerton, according to all the stories now being written, had only been running for governor because he thought it was his best chance to become president. Bobby explained to me that the police had made an arrest, but that his partner, Albert Craven, seemed convinced they must have made a mistake. Even if they were not mistaken, Craven had known the mother of the suspect for a long time. He had promised to do everything he could to find a lawyer who could help. Well, that shouldn't be difficult, I remarked. This is the kind of case that can make a career. It's once in a lifetime. Lawyers will be lining up to take this case, begging to take it. Nobody in the city will touch it, replied Bobby. It made no sense. Whoever took this case would be famous. Something was not right. Albert promised her he'd get her son one of the best, Bobby said. I remembered the way I had looked up to him when we were kids and how I had wanted to be just like him. I wondered if he had thought about that when he called and if he knew that just by saying he thought I was one of the best, I would like him even more. I listened to him tell me that there were probably half a dozen lawyers in the city who could do it, but that they were all afraid of the possible repercussions. Repercussions, I asked automatically when he paused. It did not matter to me what they might be. The following Monday morning, I watched out the window as the plane from Portland began its descent into San Francisco. Bobby was there when I landed, an eager smile stretched across his mouth as he waded off to the side of the crowd. He insisted on carrying my bag. When we stepped outside the terminal into the balmy California air, he raised his head, looked around for a moment, then waved his hand. I thought he was signaling for a cab. Instead, a limousine, which had been waiting a half block away, pulled up to the curb. I settled into the back seat across from Bobby. He looked different now, older, with the first touch of gray in his hair and the first telltale lines at the corners of his eyes. The smile still flashed, quick and alert, but it was a little dimmer, like a light that almost imperceptibly had begun to fade. It was good of you to come, he remarked as he turned away from the driver to whom he had just given instructions. I know it's an imposition and I appreciate it. His voice was as clear as ever, but he spoke a little more slowly than the way I had remembered. It's not an imposition at all, I told him. Whether or not I take the case, I'm glad you thought of me. He shook his head emphatically, as if it were for some reason important that I understand I was wrong about that. No, this wasn't my idea. Albert Craven asked me to call you. He's done a lot for me, and he never asks me for anything. That's the only reason I did it, because I couldn't think of a decent way to say no, but I made it clear to him that while I was willing to ask you to talk to him, I wouldn't ask you to take the case. It's up to you whether you do it or not, and if you decide not to, that's all right. You don't owe Albert anything, and you don't owe me anything either, okay?
Suddenly it was right there in front of us, gleaming in the golden light, sweeping down across the hills towards the bay, the city. Bobby saw the look in my eye. You ever think about living here? I shook my head. I think I'd miss the rain, I said with a lying smile. Leaving the freeway, the limousine began to crawl through the city streets. You said something on the phone about repercussions. You said none of the lawyers here were willing to take the case, and now you've just finished telling me in no uncertain terms that you're not asking me to take the case. What's the reason no one wants to be involved in this? Is it because Fullerton was a United States senator who wanted to be president and, from what I hear, had a pretty good chance of doing it? It was not the reaction I expected. Bobby laughed, and then he sighed. It doesn't have anything to do with Fullerton, not directly anyway. You won't find many people, people who actually knew him, who are all that upset that he's dead. We pulled up in front of a dark gray stone facade in the heart of the financial district, where the firm of Craven, Morris, and Hall had established their offices long before any of the new skyscrapers had been built. I stepped out of the cushioned silence of the limousine into the shrill, heart-pounding sounds of the city. Pedestrians crowded the sidewalks, cars honked their horns, somewhere around the corner a cable car clanked its bell. All the noise, all that raucous music of daily life shut behind us the moment we entered the thick, carpeted, third-floor chambers of the firm. The receptionist greeted Bobby, or rather Mr. Medlin, as she called him, in the same hushed whisper with which I had just heard her answer the telephone. A bud vase 